Welcome to RS Equity, the podcast on all things law and technology. I'm Tima. I'm Paul. And on this episode, protests in digital defense. Welcome to this last episode of the Tech for Good series. Today we want to look at how technology, how social media and other communication forms uh, help influence organization of social movements, of new initiatives and of protests. In the recent years, I mean, we have all seen the impact that communication technologies and social media has had on enhancing the way we protest and how we mobilize. I mean, civil organization and protesting is nothing new. Um, we all have the right to freedom of assembly, the right to freedom of speech, and all of these rights allow us to protest and demonstrate and really get our voices heard. But in recent years, we've seen that technology and social media has really helped to amplify movements, um, spread movements all over the world, and really push different agendas in different ways. So today we thought it would be interesting to explore this more and talk about how technology can be used to um, push movements as well as suppress movements and what are the downsides and the upsides to this. Yeah, so we've seen examples from this starting from the Arab Spring, uh, Black Lives Matter, Fridays for Future. Um, and it really changed a lot in how you would organize and the reach you get and the the speed of which you can organize something like this. Yeah, I mean, so social media has been extremely impactful. I mean, say what you want about social media. There's one thing that's been good about social media is it's really allowed us to be aware of what's happening all over the world in real time. And it's also allowed us to be able to participate in protests and in civil organizations in a way that we could never have before. I mean, a protest that will start in Minneapolis in the U.S., could spread all over the world and we could see demonstrations and marches in all um, spheres of the world from people from different walks of life. And it's 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 created a strong um, movement that we probably would have never had before in the past. So this, on the one hand, is the standard social media apps for this or and, and private messaging apps. So this is Facebook, this is Twitter, this is uh, WhatsApp and Telegram and so on, right? Yeah, exactly. So you're able to communicate with people, organize, make plans, um, set up protests and make them happen really quickly. And you can reach hundreds and thousands of people at once. Yeah, and what I found quite interesting is that there's also uh, custom tech solutions developed for some of these um, protests. For example, the independence movement in Catalonia uh, developed an app where you could register as uh, essentially one part, like you, if you want to participate and you would get news for protests that were organized, decentralized um, on your phone directly. So you could redirect um, movements uh, redirect um, protesters uh, live on the ground. Oh, that's amazing. So it's been used effectively in Catalonia, this application. I mean, it has has been used. The question is how effectively oh. if they haven't. Um, I mean, but at least for the protest, it, it worked. And um, the Hong Kong democracy movement, for example, uh, created uh, applications, so websites and, and apps to track the location of police and, and try to avoid them. So you have the wisdom of the crowd essentially for these protests. So here we have examples of technology like assisting protesters to make sure that they're able to do what they need to do without having violent clashes with the police and things like that. Exactly. But on the other hand, we do know that a lot of these um, applications and social media 
sites can be used negatively. So they can be used to spur movements that might be anti-democracy, movements that might be anti a specific group of people, something like that. Mm -hmm. So we've obviously seen examples of this with the far-right movements. um, And for example, the U.S., uprising that happened at Capitol buildings. So this is an example where people were able to organize and reach people via social media, but not necessarily for a protest that was for a positive outcome. Yeah. And I mean, like you give the people the possibility to communicate easily Mm. uh, and you have hardly any way to control this or also not necessarily the need or the motivation to control this. Uh, And you will get people who will say something that you don't like. Uh, and this probably and this this goes on a spectrum from uh, you know just problematic views and conspiracy theories um, up to terrorism that is being spread uh, online. Exactly. So it's kind of like we have these tools and we can either use them for good or we can use them for bad, and it's just kind of the way it is. I mean, I found this quite interesting how like especially these corona skeptics in in Germany, but also in Austria, for example, organize, which is Telegram mostly. Because it is a really interesting combination of a social media site and private messaging. So you have groups that are like work kind of like a messenger, mm. uh, but are big with thousands of people. So this is like Crazy. this kind of mixture between just communication to a large audience, to the public, mm. uh, and normal messaging. So it, it kind of develops its own dynamic. And then it allows it, it makes it easy for you to congregate in this encrypted space and be able to plan and then execute whatever you need in forms of protest. Right. And we've seen this as a problematic movement, for example, this uh, especially also anti-Semitic movement um, against Corona measures. So this is like all all kinds of different uh, opinions there. is mainly like one or two people that are organizing this, but it's spread over hundreds of groups. Mm. Uh, and once you are in one, you get the links for the other, and this this grows exponentially. Mm. So you're able to create a network very quickly using these applications. Exactly. And for example, for for the right wing in the US, there was Pala was created. Yeah, exactly. Essentially just for this purpose. Right. So, I mean, as we've said, the tech can also be used for bad. And I think we should dive in a little bit to anti-protest technology, which is essentially where governments or law enforcement officials manipulate or use technology as a way to suppress movements. So um, I have an interesting example of the use of facial recognition technology in the context of um, the Minneapolis Police Department, which is obviously the police department that was involved in the murder of George Floyd. And they used, so in the weeks after the murder, there was, of course, a lot of protests and things happening, riots going on. So they used Clearview AI, which is um, an artificial intelligence company that scrapes social media photos and creates facial recognition um, databases that that law enforcement can then use and basically be able to identify people. So it's kind of defined as a Shazam for human beings' faces. <laughs> so something like that. So they use that to track and trace protesters. I actually sent them an access request once, like a GDPR access request, and you really? have to upload your own photo and oh. they like, because they aren't collecting your name or anything. At least they're saying that they don't. Uh, and they are essentially doing facial recognition on the photo you sent them and show you all the photos they think they are you. 
So what did you get back? Uh, I just got one photo back that actually was me and like four other pictures that wasn't me. So this shows you the reliability of... So it's not very good. No. (laughs) Okay. Well, there you have it. I mean, it it did find this one other photo. So, I mean, there is something there. So it really is like the Shazam for human beings. So you put in what you want and then it'll give you all the other images out of that. Yeah. So I think the theory for, at least for the law enforcement purposes, would give you like the name and other like social media profiles and yeah. stuff. Um, but for this, it was just like, which, what kind of um, personal data they have of me. Mm, just for uh, you to know. Yeah. Which also is funny because they sent me someone else's personal data now. <sighs> It's just problematic after some more problems. Like, anyway, so this um, Clearview AI has actually been involved in uh, a lawsuit with the American Civil Liberties Union. So essentially, they're basically suing the company for the the way the um, their application was used in connection to the BLM protests, and they're saying that the use of this was unlawful and privacy destroying, and actually um, impacted the rights of people to protest and to freedom of assembly and freedom of speech. So, in February of this year, the Minneapolis um, government decided to ban the use of Clearview AI in the police department as a part of their larger police reform that they're mm-hmm. now doing to try and improve the situation over there. I I found it quite interesting that uh, Austrian police is also using uh, facial recognition and don't actually know how it works because this is a trade secret, they say, and they don't know anything. They just put in the picture and get something out of it, Mm. uh, which is problematic. And also they don't really have a legal basis for this, which is even more problematic. Uh, And and they've been using this on, on for protests. At least it was reported that they used it for protests. Uh, but not using social media pictures, but I think just to search their database of pictures that they have already. Oh, okay. To see if you're already in the criminal system Mm -hmm. and participating in a protest. Right. Okay. But also problematic because having been a former convict doesn't take away your right to freedom of assembly and freedom of speech. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So another thing that law enforcement is doing is they're using drones at protests. This one kind of surprised me because I didn't expect this. Very sci-fi. Yeah, right? It's like we're living in another dimension. <laughs> but um, a lot of activists, specifically in the context of BLM, have been saying in interviews and in things like that, that they are constantly being followed by drones. So the drones are used in the context of protests and mm-hmm. that has been that's the law enforcement is not disputing that they're using drones in the context of protests. And the basis for this is for situational awareness. So basically they need to have an overview of what's happening to Mm -hmm. make sure that no riots break out. Mm -hmm. And then a live feed is then um, fed to police officers so that Mm -hmm. they know if a riot is breaking out in this area, they can go there and they can stop it. So that's the purpose. I mean, I feel like that this is justified. Yes. Like this, this makes sense. Completely justified. But here's where they take it a step further is that when specific activists are now leaving the protest area, their cars are being followed by these drones. So there was an interview where an activist said that her car was followed by the drone and the drone was flying really low. So like it wasn't high enough, like you could see it literally above the car and she has videos of it and it followed her and her team all the way to the destination where they were going and then hovered around for a long time. This is creepy though. So creepy. 
So that's massively problematic because that goes way beyond the purpose that they've set out. That's not in the context of the protest. That's not in the context of making sure that people are protesting Mm. in a peaceful and lawful way. That's literally going beyond that and doing unlawful surveillance on a specific individual. Mm. And it's it's an intimidation tactic, which is massively problematic. Because the only thing you did wrong was attend the protest. Exactly. And be a notable figure at Mm. the protest. So now you're being followed. So yeah, people definitely need to be aware of that because that is something that has been reported quite often now. And so I think we'll be seeing more of drones at protests these days. Which seems crazy futuristic. (laughs) So crazy. Um, Another thing that's really crazy is the straight up shutting down of the internet. Mm -hmm. So a lot of governments are just straight up when they see protests and uprisings happen, they just shut down the internet. So there's no ability to use social media and organize. All of those things will be taken away. Yeah, and I mean, there's some countries that are more likely to do this, as we've discovered. It breaks my heart to say this because I love Africa and I love my people, but African countries are majority on the list of countries Mm. that have had internet shutdowns. Um, In 2020, there were 155 cases of internet shutdowns in 29 countries, most of them in Africa and in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. which is very sad to say. But India, surprisingly, Mm -hmm. had the most shutdowns with 109 cases of shutdowns in a specific region called Kashmir, I hope Mm. I said that correctly. But apparently this is quite a contentious area um, and there's a lot of uprisings that go on there and parts of it are are controlled by Pakistan and other parts by China and other parts by India. So it's a bit of a politically unstable area. So Mm. in that case, there were 109 shutdowns of the internet. Yeah, and the only European country that we found was Belarus. Right. Which also isn't too surprising. Yeah, apparently. Apparently, this is not surprising for Belarus, but um, it's just interesting to see that things like this happen and Mm. it's easy and it's like governments have a basis in law to do this. So I never thought about this. It's it's completely crazy that you would think that the government has a right to take away your ability to communicate and to... um, to have access to people and to organize, but it's actually true. So in the international telecommunications, okay, international telecommunications law, we have this constitution of the International Telecommunications Union. And essentially this says that um, states have the ability to decide when to cut off telecommunications. And this is also including the internet. And they can do this only on utilitarian grounds, um, such as protecting national security, public order, or decency. And they have to notify UN member states. So essentially, the government gets to decide Mm. when something is against public order or decency, which, of course, they would say a protest is. Yeah, and and Austria has quite a similar provision in the Telecommunications Act that is public order and public safety. Uh, and I think it's quite interesting also from a legal perspective how the right of recourse against this uh, is is uh, set up because in most cases it will maybe be the providers that have recourse against this because they are actually being forced to shut off the internet mm-hmm. uh, and not the individuals who like suffer the consequences. So you as an individual uh, don't really have, I'm assuming, a, a right to internet access against the state. 
Exactly. And it will affect other things. So if you're living in a region that's quite contentious and perhaps you're not involved in the protest, like for example, I read an article about some children in this Kashmir region who it was obviously in the middle of a pandemic. So they were at home Mm. and they had to do school from home and online schooling. And apparently schools were massively affected Mm. by these constant internet shutdowns. Yeah. Think about what would happen if the internet collapsed today. Like even if it's not a shutdown, but like just a technical failure. Yeah, life could not function. Life as we know it would literally be at a standstill. I mean, probably like also adding to the legal consequences would be like an infringement of your right to information, right to exactly. freedom of speech. Exactly. So it it expands to other rights. Mm. Your right to education is now infringed if you're a child who needs to do school from home. Also, like health information. Like this is how we get all of our news today. Exactly. And specifically in the context of the height of the coronavirus mm. pandemic, you don't have access to know what the measures are, what the rules are. Like it's crazy that mm. this would happen 109 times in the middle of a pandemic in India. So yeah, very tough times. But as we can see, law enforcement and the government can utilize technology or manipulate technology in a way to really suppress protests and not allow people to use their freedoms and rights. Yeah, so we also want to look at how you could fight against this or how you could avoid being targeted by this. So especially in the context of protests, uh, how you could avoid being surveilled and how you can protect your identity and protect your safety uh, in this situation. So uh, essentially, a lot of those is connected to your phone because your phone can be tracked uh, and, and there's a lot of information on your phone physically. Uh, that can, could be accessed in in by police, for example. So uh, one of the the measures that is being um, recommended by the Electronic Frontier Foundation is to, for example, um, enable encryption on your device so you can't access it. Uh, also, which I found quite interesting, is that um, the the fingerprint sensor and and facial recognition function of your phone is quite different from a passcode. So while police can force you, at least if it's a criminal proceeding against you, to tell them your passcode, they can force your finger on the fingerprint sensor, for example, uh, to unlock your phone this way and, and, you know, look at the content on your phone. So if you disable the ability to like unlock your phone with your face or with your fingerprint, then the police cannot force you to do that in the context of a protest or if you've been arrested post-protest or something like this. Exactly. There is a quite an interesting uh, feature, at least for iPhones, for the facial recognition one. If you um, press the side button five times, mm-hmm. it disables um, all of the, the touch ID and face ID features. Oh, I don't know this. So like if you're being arrested, this is something you can do to avoid this. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. I mean, another thing which is quite, it's not really a techy solution, but you could just not take your phone. Mm. And um, a lot of um, uh, NGOs recommend getting a disposable or a prepaid phone when you go to protest because, of course, your SIM card is connected with your phone number, which is linked to your entire identity. So there's you remove anonymity and you remove the knowledge that you were present at a protest if you just don't take your phone with you to the protest. I mean, this works uh, as long as... Unlike Austria, you don't have a registration duty for SIM cards. So because in Austria, if you have, if you buy a SIM card, you have to show your ID and it's being registered. Mm. Essentially for this and probably more criminal purposes. So for prevention of crimes. Um, 
But um, this is also a way, like even if you are having like a separate phone and a separate SIM card, this is still a way that they could identify you. Exactly. But also I thought about it, something that could be problematic with the prepaid phone is that it still would be, um, it would still connect to a, a cell phone tower or a cellular tower, right? So your location, even though it might not be identifiable to you specifically, the location of that mobile device at the protest could potentially still be um, something that the information would be there. Yeah, and if you have location services enabled, if you are being tracked via cell towers uh, and go home, for example, uh, you can be identified this way. Exactly. Um, So this is also something that you should consider when using public transport. So if you have like a card that is... um, always recording where you're going from which stop to where. Um, this might also be something that you might consider. Yeah. And I mean, also in the planning leading up to the protest, it's important to consider how you're communicating about what you're going to do. So we would suggest using a messaging, secure messaging applications. And many activists really suggest the use of Signal, which we've talked about before in a previous podcast. Um, And basically Signal is available on iOS and Android, and it offers strong encryption and strong privacy measures, and it allows encrypted group chats, Mm -hmm. which is probably something that would be important in the context of a protest. Yeah, and this is um, especially unlike most of the, um, unlike unencrypted communication, like SMS or email. Uh, can't be intercepted and can't be listened to. Exactly. So that's a good option to use a safe communication network or communication channel when you are planning or organizing for protests. Yeah, so we've given a lot of like practical tips uh, for this, but I mean, this is kind of the point of this whole series. Yeah, exactly. So some practical tips to consider. I mean, of course, it's not perfect. And at the end of the day, you are fighting against um, powers that are much bigger than yourselves and have had, have much more resources. You know what I mean? There's not much you can do to avoid a drone following you or something like that. But if you try to practice these small measures, you could essentially keep yourself safe online, keep your data safe, and just make sure that you are not tracked and traced when you're trying to um, express your rights to freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. Exactly. So thank you for listening to this episode of RCQV. Uh, I hope you found this series interesting. We will be back soon with another series, another interesting topic. I hope you listen as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.